0: Welcome to week three of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church, where pastors me and Clayton are uh, meditating and and reading the word along with the year-long Bible reading plan that we put out for the church. This podcast is intended to be a help to you as we go through this reading plan together, uh, take time to answer people's questions about the different biblical texts that we're reading kind of summarize each week's readings as we're coming to kind of just point out things that we think are not necessarily just things we think are interesting, but just things to be watching for, or just ways to pay attention to the themes of these stories so that it's easier to kind of understand as you're going through each individual thing, Mm -hmm. how it all fits in together. We have some listener questions to respond to this week. Yes, we do. Also,
1: as a reminder, please always send in your questions about the passages we talk about or passages we've already talked about. I think we'd be happy to answer questions from further back if they come up or if you're a little behind. It's all connected. It's all
0: connected. It's all good. If you
1: ask a a question ahead of time, we may wait. We reserve the right to answer questions when the text comes up. So um, we do have a couple of questions. The first one is this. Why did Abimelech react differently to Abraham and Isaac when they lied about their sisters wives? So if you remember in the story um, of Abraham, he lies to Abimelech mm-hmm. and claims that Sarah is his sister. Yes,
0: yeah, chapter 20. Abraham 20, it's, or Abraham 20, Genesis 20 itself. And
1: so <laughs> the king of Gerar sent for Sarah and took her. And then as we go on in the story, God comes to Abimelech and says, "Hey, that was a really bad thing to do, and now you're as good as dead." And Abimelech says, "No, I didn't know. Uh, Abraham told me she was his sister." And then Abimelech goes, and he's pretty upset with Abraham about that. I think,
0: I think, for understandable reasons, that because would... he'd taken Sarah kind of into his harem. What is a harem? Like a collection of royal women for the king to propagate. <laughs> Little kings.
1: Yeah, there's no way we're going to be able to avoid that kind of talk in, in this podcast. If anyone is bothered by us uh, referring to the word harem, you're listening to the wrong podcast.
0: And you're reading the wrong, the wrong Bible, Bible, which is the only Bible that exists. That's... Well, that's not strictly <laughs> true. We but are
1: not going there. So then we'll in chapter 26, we have Isaac, Isaac and thing. Abimelech. Yeah. And so um, what happens is something similar, uh, starting in verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say she's my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? And then as it goes on, Abimelech again is upset, but no one had taken her as a wife. And so then Abimelech gives orders to protect them and give them kind of support. And so I think the very good question is, why the different reactions between the two?
0: That's a good question. I think that, so sometimes with the translation from Hebrew and Greek to English, we miss that some proper nouns are titles and not names. Mm. And so I think it's... Uh, quite likely that Abimelech is not this individual's name, but is actually the like title of the king of Gerar. Just like Pharaoh is not the Egyptian ruler's name; that's just the title, because it means something like uh, like my father is king, or you know, it
1: means literally my father is king. Aba
0: Melech. <clears throat> um, and so it's probably two different individuals, because there's also quite a bit of time that's passed between the two stories, so it's unlikely that. And they are kings of different places. Abimelech. Oh, I thought they were both Gerar.
1: They might both be in Gerar. They're described differently in the stories. Um, so one is the king of the Philistines, and one focuses on Gerar. Also, one of the uncomfortable things that happens in the first story with Abraham is he says, Well, I wasn't lying. She really is my sister. <laughs> and we get to learn that Abraham had married his half sister, which is not something we recommend doing. That was a different time. That was a different time. Isaac is lying when he calls Rebekah his sister. <laughs> That's true. Do with that what you will. All right. That was a good question. The second question. um, What's the issue with the blessing? So we all know the story. Uh, Jacob pretends to be Esau, and he steals his brother's blessing. This happens in chapter 27. And so he dresses up as Esau. Isaac, whose eyesight is failing, he reaches out. He verifies that his son is who he thinks he is. And he even says, it feels like Esau, but it sounds like Isaac. Mm-hmm. But then he, Or Jacob, yes. And then he gives Jacob the eldest son's blessing, which is a greater blessing. And Isaac had favored Esau, and so he was very upset about this. Isaac leaves, and Jacob comes in later and gets a much smaller blessing. Or at least it reads like it's a smaller blessing. Isaac seems to think it's a smaller blessing. What's going on with those? Are those... Do those have some supernatural power that, like, Isaac, once he'd given the good one, can't, like, undo it and give the correct one to Esau? Why does it read that way?
0: Perhaps that's part of what happen- It's happening. My suspicion, and I'd want to look more into this, is two things. One, that Esau has already given away his birthright to Jacob in an earlier story, and so I think that there is some... There's a sense in which this has already happened, like he's given away his birthright as firstborn. Uh, Well, not given away, he's traded it, you know, for the bowl of soup to Jacob. And so I think that, that what's happening is Isaac unknowingly is kind of confirming what Esau's already done. And I think that really what's happening is it's a, this is a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? More or less like a legal ritual. (laughs) Like Isaac has legally signed over the lion's share of the estate to Isaac, or to Jacob. Mm -hmm. So he can't legally give it to Esau because he's already given to Jacob. He could probably lie, but that would be wrong. Right, that would be wrong. Um, And uh, it might be possible that everybody knows that Esau sold his birthright or not. I mean, we don't know. Seems like Rebecca kind of knows everything. So I'm <laughs> pretty, Rebecca like probably knows what Esau did. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that was a secret in that house. Well, and that even could be, you know, I mean, she has her word from the Lord that, you know, two nations are warring in your womb and the older will serve the younger. So she's going off of that. But then to also hear that the firstborn sold his birthright for soup, you know, she's probably thinking, Esau is an idiot and <laughs> should not be the one managing. I mean, we all
1: thinking that when we read that story. Well,
0: that's true, but just you know, so she's like, okay, so if we want this household to continue, Jacob needs to be the one in charge of it, and not Esau. So yeah, I, th- I would say that's what's happening. I think that because the legal form is very different than our legal forms, we mm-hmm. we don't immediately recognize it. Right. But yeah, I don't think Isaac is saying like a magic spell that now applies to Jacob and he can't take it back. You know, I think he can't take it back in the same way that I don't know. If you sign an agreement that you're going to buy Twitter for $44 billion, <laughs> you can't just go back and say, no, never mind. Mm. I don't want to do it now. Cause the courts say, Nope, you got to do it. Cause you signed the things. <laughs> All right. We do
1: have one more question. A third question came in last night, actually. And it was, why does the Bible make no mention of barren men? So barrenness is a theme that we kind of encounter here in the beginning chapters or in the book of Genesis. We see it with Sarai. We see it also in the family of Jacob. And so one of the, the, I think a fair question is, it's always referred to as the woman was barren, Mm -hmm. never the man was barren.
0: Mm -hmm. Why is that? I think if some more ladies had been involved in the writing of the Bible, perhaps (laughs) the language (laughs) would have been a little different. I'm just, Uh perhaps, perhaps, I don't know that. I don't think it was a mistake. I don't think God's like, if only I'd gotten a few more women to write the Bible.
1: (laughs) That's probably true.
0: (laughs) But I think that that is a reality. Mm -hmm. I think that's a reflection of kind of the cultural assumptions, biological assumptions that are not necessarily endorsed by scripture. They're just present in it because it's a product of its culture and time. And so it seems like with the way they talk about it, the ancient, Israelites thought of human fertility like kind of an act ag- in an agricultural way, mm-hmm. meaning that the woman was the field and the man provided the seed. And I, if I'm, I believe, uh, when they reference or any reference to kind of the male reproductive act is usually the words for seed or seeds, you know, Abraham's seed, Onan spilled his seed on the ground. And so, I mean, mm-hmm. it's the same word, you know, used for sowing right. seed in an agricultural context. And so while it's possible for seeds themselves to be bad and to not uh, germinate, I don't think they understood that. And so I think the assumption was that it was always the ground that had the problem, yes, not the seeds. So even like Jesus' parable of the sower, none of those four options is it a problem with the seed. The seed is always good. It's the ground that can have various mm-hmm. issues with it. And so I think that that's probably what's operating there, is that the... They took that assumption from agriculture and then applied it to human Mm -hmm. fertility to say if there's an issue, it's the woman because she is kind of the the field being sown in this sense, whereas the man is is sowing the seed.
1: The husbands are actually able to produce children. It is when they try to do it with their wife that they're not able to do it in those cases. Now, that is not to say that the question was wrong because it's right. Right. Barrenness is considered a female problem through the Bible, and it should not be. That was a cultural misunderstanding at the time. Okay, so this time we're doing something fun. We are finishing the book of Genesis from chapter 40 on, and then we are beginning the book of Job. We mentioned last week that we're in a chronological reading plan, so we're going from Genesis to Job, even though Moses wrote all five books of, of the Pentateuch, we believe. Um, we think that Job, the events that happen in it, are ancient. In fact, one of the characters in Job may actually be related to Esau, which is an interesting thing. Hmm. And so uh, uh, we're going to go from one to the next here. So starting with chapter 40 of Genesis. In the last 11 chapters of Genesis, we get the majority of the story of Joseph. Beginning with his time in prison, being forgotten about, and interpreting dreams. All the way through his encounter with Pharaoh and his rise to power. We see God doing several things through the story of Joseph. We see that trickery in Abraham's descendants is not limited to Jacob, but is present in all of Jacob's sons as well, perhaps except for the youngest. We see that through terrible injustice, Yahweh is able to bring remarkable blessings, summed up by Joseph's words, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is, among other things, foreshadowing another, in- another injustice against an innocent man, Betrayed by his people, through which Yahweh would save many lives. I do think that we are reminded as we read, obviously, original readers of the book of Genesis would not know the story of Jesus. But I think we can see a connection there in the way that Yahweh tends to operate. Also, we see and are told that in a most unexpected way, Yahweh is fulfilling the promise to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation. That is something that will be fulfilled in Egypt. Also, we see a continuation of the theme, which is important all through the Old Testament. The Yahweh does not simply prefer the eldest as the world does. Mm -hmm. As he chose Jacob over Esau, even though Jacob had done nothing to earn it, it happened while they were in the womb. Um, He chose Joseph over his brothers. And Jacob participates in this when he chooses Ephraim over Manasseh. That's a cool scene at the end where he crosses his Mm -hmm. arms. And Joseph says, hey, wait a second. And Jacob says that. I've figured something out that Yahweh does, and I'm going to continue it. And mm. so that uh, that's a very neat moment. And so that is the book of Genesis. It is an incredible way for the first book of the Bi- or for the Bible to begin. It is possible. I mean, I think we can say, and there there might be exceptions to this, but every theme or nearly every theme that we find through Scripture finds its roots in the book of Genesis. It is a book you can read a thousand times and come nowhere near plumbing the depths of. If you've kept up with it, I imagine you've noticed things that you did not notice before. I certainly have, even though I've read this book many, many times.
0: Dreams play a very prominent role in the Joseph story. And I think they... Jacob? Am I right about that? that Jacob is the first of the patriarchs to start having... that specifically says he has dreams?
1: Hmm. Well, I, I, what I was thinking of was the... Uh, uh, the latter, and we would, there's debate about whether that's a dream or he's seeing into the spiritual realm, which mm-hmm. are not this exa- always the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Are you referring to something different with Jacob? No. Okay. Yeah. Just
0: because he, if the Bethel experiences a dream, which I tend to think it is, just because he's laying down and everything, but, I, you know, that's... Sure. Because he has that one, he dreams while he's still with Laban... I think at least once, and I don't know if he has a second one, but like Abraham, like Yahweh comes to visit him, but like we're not given any indication that those are dreams. I mean, especially since like somebody comes, like that Sarah can overhear them visiting. (laughs) So like that wasn't a dream. Sure. And Isaac, I don't think really has.
1: Well, Abram, Genesis 15, which is one of the coolest chapters in the Bible. It begins with, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And so it seems like when God is doing direct communication, it's hard to maybe differentiate what's the difference between a dream and a vision. Uh, I think that it's true that dreams can be just dreams, but it seems like in the book of Genesis, visions are direct communication from the Lord. But dreams, which may be a little different, can also be communication from the Lord or can contain information about the future.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I think it was a fairly common belief in the ancient Near East that dreams were. I mean, we still think this, yes. right? You have a dream; it feels very meaningful, and we have an urge to tell other people about it. <laughs> <laughs> I told Pastor Ben about one of my dreams today. So that's, well, because that's funny we and we, like, we all yeah. do it all the time. You know, we all do it all the time, and so it is. Even if it is just brain noise, you know, I think it is... We have these experiences while we sleep that seem to transport us somewhere else. They're indistinguishable from reality while they're happening. Most of the time. Occasionally, you realize you're in Mm. a dream. (laughs) That happened to me a week or so ago. I realized I was dreaming. Did you fly? No, it was like... It wasn't a nightmare, but it was not a pleasant dream. So then I started shaking my face in the dream, and I woke up doing that. (laughs) Like... (laughs) (laughs)
1: You shook yourself out.
0: You I shook myself shook out, out of the, of the dream. dream. Yeah, yeah.
1: Shake out of it. That, <laughs>
0: that's probably where that, that comes from. Maybe shake it. Shake out of it. Well, because it seems like Joseph, throughout his whole story, he dreams. Like I mean, dreams are like the turning points of the story. Like, why does Joseph not? Like, why does Yahweh not visit him? or give him visions, like why does it turn into dreams? I'm not expecting you to necessarily have a great answer to that. It's just something I noticed in my reading. I was like, huh, that's interesting that it kind of turns into dreams for Joseph rather than kind of visits, we could say. I have a
1: thought. I'm not sure if it's correct. But the book of Genesis, there's a sadness to the story because one of the things that's happening is we are moving further and further away from the garden, if not geographically, mm-hmm. then at least in chronology,
0: right? Well, like, and they are geographically when right? yes, Joseph's left end. Israel, yeah.
1: I mean, there's some moving around right yeah, yeah. at the beginning, but the, the, we don't know where the garden is for sure. But uh, uh, one of the things that's happening is God's people are are further and further from him in their connection to him.
0: The last word of Genesis in English is Egypt. So right, right this idea of exile and, mm-hmm. and leaving, yeah.
1: And so I think, that, um, I think that it's possible that God is just not presenting himself in the same way because there's this distance. I do not mean that God is far away and unable to interact. I just mean that the close connection that we knew in the garden has faded hmm. um, and has continued to fade. There's something very special with Abram. I mean, the Lord comes to Abram over and over mm-hmm. again. He speaks to him. The smoking fire pot in Genesis 15 is just so cool. Um, but when we get to Jacob, we get, it seems like, um, we either get angels or we get, uh, some people think that the, the man who wrestles with him is Yahweh in a body.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we would. Uh, we Christians might think that is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, but the, there's, a, there's still this distance. Neither of them have the... the no one has the, the meetings with God, with Yahweh, that Abram does. And those meetings were not as rare earlier on in the Bible. Either that or Abram is special because he is the one who responds to the call and he is the patriarch. And so him and God are closer. I could see that too.
0: One of the things that keeps recurring is just this idea of like memory and forgetfulness. Ooh. And I don't necessarily have a question attached to it. Just again, something I noticed maybe for the first time certainly through the joseph stories but even like thinking further back of like that god remembered rachel and opened her womb Mm. and like you know the cupbearer forgot about joseph and then joseph when he has the boys he names manasseh manasseh because it is because god has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household so like i said not really a question attached just something i notice in terms of just recurring words, you know, throughout yeah, well, the story well, remembering
1: and forgetting are really important things in the Bible um, that carry all the way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word forsake really means, like, a very intentional forgetting. You know, a lot of the times when we read forgetting in the uh, in the Bible, it is not like the information is slipped, although it is in the cupbearer's um, case. Well, do
0: you think so? Or do you think for some reason he, like, intentionally, well, quote-unquote, forgot Joseph? I could see
1: that. It'd be weird. Like, hey, Pharaoh uh this
0: guy i met in prison
1: right he uh <laughs> he 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 speaks dream language dude and uh you should talk to him like i i could see him forgetting that he had just been in prison and the other guy had been executed he probably didn't want to draw attention right, to
0: himself right right so, so he saved it saved the ooh. information for an opportune time
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> i mean okay. that's
0: you know that's reading into it but
1: but remembering is something that's very important for us as we move all the way through the bible um God's people remember uh, the Exodus. They remember God's actions to save His people. Mm-hmm. Um, we are told to remember the the um, last meal of Jesus with right. His disciples. Right. Um, the remembering in with Moses means like taking the place of or standing in the place mm-hmm. of,
0: like putting yourself into the story. Yeah.
1: Yes you you were you were there even though you weren't. Right. Um, and and I think that's powerful. And so. I hadn't noticed that either, but uh, I'm not surprised to find that beginning as a theme here in Genesis.
0: Mm -hmm. And so it's not so much that you actually forget, it's more that the community intentionally sort of reminds itself Mm -hmm. or reminds each other of, you know, the acts of God or of the covenant or we don't forget about Jesus' last supper in between our our times of taking communion, but we do it in remembrance, you know, we do it.
1: It's not about in, remembering information so in you a memorial, really. Right. You know, it's reliving and keeping yeah, reliving it alive. Reliving
0: is a good way to put one it. One of
1: my one of my favorite traditions, my wife and I have. Formational. It's yes.
0: formational memory.
1: <laughs> one of my favorite traditions, my wife and I have, is on our anniversary, we get our photo album from our wedding out, there, mm-hmm. and we go through it, and we remember that day. We have not forgotten that day. Right. But it is alive anew in us as we go through that that, um, yeah, that book of pictures, and so. I I, there's something active and important about remembering that is important for the Christian faith.
0: But I think it, and we'll we'll talk more about this when we get to Deuteronomy in a month or two, so stay tuned, Mm -hmm. but I, I think it also just ties into how the ancient Hebrews conceived of time in not quite a linear way like we do, where the past and the future and the present are like distinct things that can't come into contact.
1: Looking forward to that. I have heard that Deuteronomy is the hidden gem of the Old Testament.
0: It is the hidden gem of the Old Testament. I, if I could build a cottage in any of the books of the Bible, I would build it in Deuteronomy.
1: Chronicles is wondering what they've done wrong.
0: I would raise pumpkins and I would sell people cider. (laughs)
1: Hmm. When we can't find Pastor Ben one day, we will he's, discover him he's in the Book, of Deuteronomy. To the
0: Book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> we will all open
1: our Bibles and he will be there <laughs> waving at us. Standing, standing among God's people, as Moses is telling them to remember.
0: Yes. I'm just, I'm just saying. So Jacob, in the midst of his grief about Benjamin, like has this like formulaic response he keeps saying, like, I'm you're gonna bring my grey hairs down in sorrow to the grave or to Sheol. And I'd like to talk Mm, a little bit about what does Jacob mean? Yeah. Because it's the first time this has appeared in scripture is in these stories about Joseph and Benjamin. So if you could just tell us a little bit about, like, what does Jacob mean? Like, what's he talking about? And what do we, and because some translations say, will say the grave or death or even the realm of the dead. But then others, I think like the ESV will use the word Sheol, Mm -hmm. S-H-E-O-L. Sheol? was
1: the wasteland or the void or the underworld. And in ancient cosmology, the way they viewed the world, it was just kind of underneath. Um, so above, up was where the gods, gods or God dwelled with spiritual beings in the heavens. And we, That makes sense, you look up, you see stars. What are stars in the ancient world? You thought those were spiritual, spiritual beings, beings yeah. right? Stars are angels? One of our best conversations ever. The place where people went is down and we would be loath to make fun or be surprised that anybody would be so simple because still today, if you ask people about where hell is, for example, they will point down. Now Sheol and hell are not equivalent concepts, but there's a lot of overlap there. And so in the ancient worldview, the Hebrew worldview, Sheol was the dwelling place of the dead, the general dwelling place of the dead. Um, If there is a place where your spirit goes after you die, it's there. It was a scary place. Some people thought you could get there if you went underwater far enough. Like it was physically lower. And so where do you put people when they die? Bury them in the ground. ground. You (laughs) put them closer to the dwelling place of the dead. Because dead goes down, right, Mm -hmm. is kind of that idea. And so this is an important thing all through, the, all through the Old Testament because we have hints of resurrection that come up out even very early in the Old Testament. And the idea of resurrection is that the bodies come out of the grave mm-hmm. and are reconnected. So there's that mm-hmm. valley of dry bones in mm-hmm. Ezekiel mm-hmm. and it's that, that the skeletons develop sinew and muscle and skin and then they're, they're alive again. They've been pulled out of the grave from below and made and resurrected into today. And then that makes a whole host of questions when we skip ahead to the New Testament, <laughs> because the, the Greek and Hebrew words are not equivalent. The Correct. Greek word Hades. Yeah usually means the dwelling place of the dead like Sheol does. Right. And at the same time our Bible translates it most of the time as hell. Yeah. And I think sometimes it means what we mean by Which hell. Which the Greeks had
0: another word for. It. They did. Yeah.
1: I think sometimes hell is being referred to. I think other times something like Sheol is being referred to. And it requires us to be careful when we read our Bible.
0: I read a really good book a few years ago about like Jesus descending to the dead. Hmm. And he makes the point, which I don't know if I'm like fully like, yeah, I agree. But it was just, it was very helpful. Okay, so the book is called He Descended to the Dead, an Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday by Matthew Emerson. So if you're interested in that, you can borrow it from me or, or buy it on your own. His main idea is that Like you were just saying, so Sheol in the Old Testament is conceived of as a place where everybody goes because everybody dies, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's just, it's the, it's the reality of death that everybody dies and, and goes to the end of the world, uh, to the underworld. There are hints that another fate is possible. Like David in the Psalms talks about going to Yahweh and being in the presence of Yahweh, but it seems like, you know, most everyone, Jacob is assuming that he will go to the grave, you know. Which it's also not necessarily all negative, right? Because it talks about like being gathered to his people People, or being gathered to his fathers. And so there's a sense of, I guess, ambiguity that like the grave is bad because you're dead. But it's not necessarily a place of torture. It's just the place where all the dead people go. And so Emerson in his book just kind of traces this and develops some of the themes that we find in the New Testament that Jesus descended to the place of the dead and then unlocked it. So that the people on covenant with him can leave, but mm-hmm. those who aren't don't. And so, and, and so, it's like Jesus sort of turns Sheol into hell by virtue of the fact that you know, without faith in him, you're stuck there. But he's made it possible to leave the place of the dead. Um, and so, anyway, I just thought it was it was it was helpful. I enjoyed it. I was glad I read it. It clarified some of those New Testament passages that we don't need to get into because we'll get there eventually. Uh, but it was just helpful in terms of thinking about this the distinction that we find between the testaments of kind of how the afterlife is presented to us and so that yeah sheol is where everybody goes but jesus has made a way out of it right made a way out of death i had one last thought about genesis so right right. at the very end there's so
1: much here we can spend the whole time it's okay
0: and you referenced you referenced this already uh but that so jacob dies and then the brothers come to placate Joseph because they're afraid he's going to kill them now that Jacob is dead. And Joseph says, no, no, it's okay. The important verse, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So that phrase you intended to harm me can also be translated as you intended it for evil, but God Mm -hmm. intended it for good. And so I see this, this was, I didn't come up with this. I don't remember where I read it or heard it, but just that what we're seeing here is Joseph is a human who can discern between good and evil, uh-huh. which kind of, At the end of circles the book of back to the tree in the garden, so cool. you know, the, mm-hmm. the garden of good or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so it's it's not that God was never going to teach humans to discern between good and evil. I think he was. So it wasn't that the fruit was forbidden forever. I think that maybe the fruit was forbidden at that time. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to get into the details on that, but just that the the goal of being able to discern from good and evil was not something God was going to withhold from us forever. Right.
1: Well, I think he was actually literally teaching it through giving them a fruit they were told not to eat.
0: Well, yeah, that's, and, and, and so we see that even though they're in Egypt, even though the presence of God is fading as we mm-hmm. get further and further from Eden, like even though those, even though all of that is true, we still see God's redemptive purposes at work in this family that Joseph is a human that can discern the difference between good and evil. You know, he's a he's a messianic figure. I mean that word is not used for him in the text in terms of being an anointed one, but he is a human, a a offspring of Eve, who mm-hmm. has come forward and is able to do this. It would give the original readers, I think that would be a hope. signal of hope a signal of, you know, that that God's man, so to speak, is coming Mm -hmm. and he'll be something like Joseph. Well great. So that was the book of Genesis. We did it. We did it. We did (laughs) we got through Genesis. If you want to know more, read it. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to know
1: more after that, listen to this podcast. Listen to this
0: podcast, but we between Clayton and I we have a lot of books. A lot of books about Genesis, different themes of Genesis. So
1: academic ones come we've got talk easy to ones. us
0: we've got a ton of resources i would also uh, if you haven't been around calvary for the last few years we did a whole sermon series on the entire book of genesis which i frankly thought was great it was it was a lot of fun to do <laughs> it was a lot of fun and we it was just really good and so those are available you can either find them on our youtube channel or i think they're all actually on the website And on this podcast, if you go further down Mm -hmm. the feed, you'll find the the Genesis sermons eventually.
1: The book of Job opens by telling us about a blameless and upright man who feared God and shunned evil. Pastor Ben is nodding. What does Job mean?
0: Persecuted, hated, or the one who weeps, the weeper. Hmm, The weeper. Interesting. Makes you
1: wonder if he was named Job his whole life or if that is our renaming. Well, I was going
0: to say, so he might be in Genesis just under a different name.
1: Ooh. Anyway. Carry you think on. he's Melchizedek?
0: Ooh, ooh, oh, ooh. Ooh. Who knows? All right. So, the Book of no. B- I'm sorry. I have to go become <laughs> Jewish now. That just totally changed my life.
1: <laughs> the Book of Job opens by telling us about a blameless and upright man who feared God and shunned evil. He's named Job, and he is wealthy and very blessed with lots of children, lots of livestock, and lots of servants, which is how you would determine being very blessed at this time. We're even told that he's the greatest man among all the people of the East. Mm. Then Satan, the accuser, comes and presents himself to Yahweh. And Yahweh mentions Job. Satan suggests that Job only fears God because of the hedge of protection. If you've ever wondered where that phrase comes from Mm -hmm. in our prayers, Mm -hmm. it comes from here. Around everything in his life, Yahweh gives the accuser permission to take away everything. But Job's life is a wager. Um, So Yahweh and Satan wager with everything except for Job's life itself to see whether Job's faith is indeed self-serving. And Satan does. In a very short time, Job's livestock, servants, and children are all taken from him, and he's stricken with terrible sores all over his body. In fact, the only thing Satan didn't take from Job was his wife, who very likely was a lovely person, um, and but was also in the midst of grief and does not seem to have been a beneficial presence in Job's life as we move on in the story curse God, and die, being words that she says to Job. As Job sits in his misery, three of his friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nemethite, approach and sit with him in his misery. Sitting with him in his grief, offering the support of friendship for seven days and seven nights in silence. We are going to to rag on his friends quite a bit as Mm. we go forward, it is unavoidable. The book of Job does it. (laughs) But it is important to say that they did sit with him for they seven days. They kept their
0: mouths shut for a whole week.
1: Yeah. And seven so nights. How in- is he going to point that out, yeah. too? The yeah. impatience with which they speak, that is important context. Um, I think it would be tough to sit for seven days and seven nights next to your friend who is crying and scraping his skin with broken shards of pottery that might wear on a person. <laughs> Anyways, um, then Job speaks with a pretty dark expression of his grief wishing he had never been born because his life is now and will continue to be filled with suffering. This bothers Job's friends who, in a remarkably selfish and foolish turn, each proceed to argue with him. Here's a hint. When your loved one is going through terrible trauma and expresses sadness, do not argue with them. But anyways, and the rest of our section continues forth with this formula. One of Job's friends chastises him and he responds. His friends are unhelpful. The first one, Eliphaz, who may be Esau's oldest son, suggests that Job's piety and righteousness are well known and have encouraged and rebuked many a wayward sinners. And so Eliphaz hopes Job will take some of his own medicine because Mm
0: -hmm.
1: everyone knows God doesn't punish the innocent. Job, God doesn't punish the innocent. Everyone knows that. So Job, you must have done something wrong to bring this disaster on yourself is the essence of what Eliphaz says. Bildad, the second friend, uh, he speaks up and he takes a little bit of a different tack. While Eliphaz is at least a little polite to Job at the beginning, uh, Bildad just sort of goes for the throat and says, listen, maybe you didn't do anything wrong because you're still alive, but obviously your kids deserved to die or else God wouldn't have had them killed. And finally, it also not good things to say to a friend who's in the midst of grief. And finally, Zophar takes his turn and says that actually everyone knows that God is merciful. So whatever Job's family did, they actually probably deserved far worse than they got. Hmm. So, Job, stop arguing with God because he's too great. You're never going to win anyway. And you just need to repent of whatever you've done. And if you do, God's probably going to heal you of that really gross skin thing you have (laughs) going on. Job tells his friends that he feels betrayed by them because they've taken God's side over his. And he reiterates that he wishes he was dead, that God torturing him isn't a past event. They're talking about it like it's a past event. God is continuing to torture him without reason, because every moment is filled with suffering, both because of his affliction and because of his grief. And Job laments that it's not fair. God is too great. And even if Job is right, he isn't smart enough or powerful enough to win an argument with God. So God just gets to torture people, and no one can stop him. And... He's worse than Job's friends are suggesting because he seems to be more kind to the wicked than the good. There are some really good important questions here, like how can a good God cause or allow so much suffering? How are we supposed to understand suffering in the midst of it? How ought we understand God when we see differences in the way that the world reacts to the people or he seems to bless people differently? All these things are really good themes through Job, and they're all present here in the first eleven chapters.
0: And I think we'll talk about Job again next week too. But just that Hope this so. is, and we saw this already in Genesis. The the ancient Near Eastern people and the Hebrew authors of the Old Testament, especially, like they didn't think they didn't think things or tell stories linearly like we do. Uh, they tended to like kind of cycle through themes kind of over and over again mm-hmm. they change a little bit each time and i think some of that is kind of the fossilization of what was oral traditions being turned into written traditions yes but i think that that part of what's happening there too is it is built to be meditated on you know yes. that's one of the things the bible project i think has has very helpfully contributed to a lot of people's understanding of the Bible is that it is intended and designed to be slowly read through over a lifetime. And that, you know, when you notice new things each time, like that's not an accident. Um, And so when you can kind of catch these cycles, it's like, okay, now I get it. We're doing this again, but this time it's a little different, you know, and the meaning is found in the comparison. And so you'll notice that as you read the discourses between Job and his three friends that they a surface reading, it's almost like they just keep saying the same thing over and over again for 30 chapters, but they're not. Like, they're they're kind of cycling through these things. So there are a lot of similarities, but the thing is changing slightly each time as well. And yes. that's part of the fun and it's important is to yeah. find those changes.
1: And I don't, I just don't know. I'm sure that this is not true, but it was true for me. Job cannot be fully appreciated until you've suffered. Those listening to this podcast will probably not be surprised. My wife, Lisa, and I, we've been through a lot. There are parts of Job that resonate with me deep in my soul in a way that just did not. I read this a lot when I was younger. I thought it was a neat book. It was the philosophy book, mm-hmm. you know, where where philosophy is given and argued. And I'm an arguer. I really liked Job for that reason. I did not grasp the depth and power of this book to put feelings into words um, that happen inside of a heart that's hurting. Mm-hmm. And that's a gift that Job gives. It helps us suffer with Job because we get stuck in our suffering.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: hearing Job work out his suffering helps us also work out our suffering because we have these same frustrations. Mm-hmm. Why why me, God, when this awful person who does not care about you is having such an easy time of it? Even though we're on different sides of the cross, the questions that we have are not different from them.
0: What's the deal with the angels?
1: <laughs> what is the deal with the angels, right? One <laughs> or of
0: the... sons of God, as or other translations God, yes. have it.
1: These places grab us because we're like, oh, the secrets of the universe are being <laughs> spilled. Um, a couple of things that we want to take from this. First of all, is that Satan does not show up again in Job. Job could not tell us more strongly that Satan is not the, <laughs> the not character the you should focus on. It's not great when we get excited every time we get to read about Satan. Um, we ought not value his, uh, uh, his character in the Bible in the way that we sometimes do. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I think is going on? So what is, one of the things that I think is well, happening in the narrative? Oh,
0: I was gonna say well, maybe I can, I can narrow yeah. the band of the question a little bit. like why like they're coming in and out of Yahweh's presence, Satan is there. like just what yeah just what is that? What is it trying to describe or depict us?
1: Um, I think there's two good ans- good ways to approach that.. Okay. Um, the first one is to say that what I think is happening is the readers of Job are being told, that when bad things happen, um, that can be decided on a plane that is not yours. You mm-hmm. are, the reader is left with no doubt that this is not Job's fault. Mm-hmm. And I don't know of a better way to do that than to literally have a conversation between Yahweh and Satan mm-hmm. and have the result be Job's suffering. If we just started with Job's suffering, the reader might find themselves in the same position as Job's friend's or, or feel like they're on their side. And the fact that the book begins this way tells us, accuses him right from the beginning that Job is innocent. Hmm. He did not bring this on himself. And his children did not bring this on themselves. So we know the friends are wrong from the beginning. And that's important. But that isn't the exciting question. That's not the one, the one everyone <laughs> wants to know what's going on. All right. So the word Satan means accuser. And there's a lot of question about what his role as a spiritual being is was. Satan's name means the accuser, and there's a lot of question about what his role in the spiritual realms were. Pastor Ben and I both think that he's one of the sons of God that gets talked about at different times through scripture. Um, And there's there's we could focus too much here, but it does seem that he has access to God, um, that he has a role as the accuser. um, Because that is what he's doing. He is trying to accuse Job of only having faith in Yahweh because of the blessings that he gets from that. Um, And so it seems like there's something to this position in God's court that that the accuser has. If this is the same creature as the serpent in Genesis 3, which I think it is, then he has already fallen um, and yet still has the ability to go and speak with God.
0: Well, and I think it's worth pointing out, again, similar to Abimelech, that this isn't necessarily a proper name. It's it a is title. not necessarily a proper name. So in Hebrew, be, my understanding is title. there is the word the in front of Satan. It's mm-hmm. the Satan, which would indicate more of a title than it's this angel's name. Because in the New Testament, we see Satan in Revelation, like the word Satan, but otherwise mm-hmm. it's the devil. Right. They never call him Satan.
1: Uh, ooh, oh, no, that's not Luke, true. Jesus it, says, yeah. I
0: saw Satan fall like lightning from mm-hmm. heaven. Yeah, you're right.
1: And so the, the, the thing is, the question is, so we have Satan with the word the and without the word the mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. Um, which one is referring to the devil? Um, I think, I think I would need to do some checking to, to make sure. But when the word the is in front of it, I think we're to take that is the the one we refer to as the devil. I think this is the devil. Interesting. A lot of people disagree about yeah, that. I and I'm at peace.
0: I th- yeah, I don't think it is either. But... Well, there you go. But, you know... Uh, people are allowed to disagree but I think on you're right. kinds of things. Well, and I think your insight that this is not the center of gravity of the book of Job is very important. <laughs> well,
1: right, because Job is not actually trying to tell us right. something it's important about Right, it's not actually trying to explain
0: work. the, the workings of the universe because it starts this way and then it just leaves it behind it's in also fact, interesting
1: anytime co- we see what's going on behind the scenes usually that's not the main thing going mm-hmm. on so it never answers the questions that yeah. we wanted to answer
0: it's also interesting to point out just for us as readers the difference between prose and poetry in the hebrew bible is designated by a difference in the way that the uh, paragraphs or the lines are structured mm-hmm. so you'll You'll notice that as you get to Job 3, that it shifts into short, you know, like it just shifts into a different, what's the word I'm looking for? Format. Mm -hmm. The formatting changes. And that's reflecting the shift from prose, just a story, into poetry. Yes. Um, And so Job 1 and 2 are prose. There's some poetry scattered around there, but mostly it's just this narrative, but then it shifts into the poetry. But I did notice there are several references to Leviathan in these opening... And other names uh, that also
1: meant Leviathan.
0: Yeah, and so I just, I, my and I hadn't noticed that until this time reading through it. What do you, what do you think's going on there?
1: And that's a great question. So Leviathan is believed to be this great sea creature um, that was part of uh, was it Canaanite mythology, um, but it was this this giant creature that lived in the the monster, sea. Really. This monster, really. Yeah. Monster. And it was dangerous, you know, and that's the idea of monsters in the waters is not so old that we don't know that old maps, even from Mm -hmm. a few hundred years ago, you know, here, there be monsters is at the end of the end of the map. Um, Leviathan is present, I think, for a few reasons. One, um, it is considered a wild thing that is the biggest, scariest thing in nature that they know of. And so when they're referring to something great, dangerous, and scary, Leviathan makes sense as a thing to refer to. In the midst of Job's suffering, mm-hmm. this is the kind of language that would come out. Also, if he's a creature that dwells in the water, which is what he's supposed to be, and that there's the deep connection between the water and chaos mm-hmm. and unpredictability, um, things not going the way that they're supposed to, He's sort of a representative of this time in Job's life, where Job has lived a pretty orderly life up to mm-hmm. this point. I think a pretty predictable one. Job has done well and been blessed, and then then all this happens at once, and I mean at once. You know, we're the narrative is the the people coming to tell him about the the servants, the livestock, and the children. I mean, like arrive one at, right after the other. I mean, it's mm-hmm. all at once, and. I think a representative of the chaos of life makes sense to be showing up. Also, though, we're going to find out that Leviathan, big and scary and terrible as it may be, has a master. Mm -hmm. And that is Yahweh. Mm -hmm. And the end of Job is, once you get to chapter 38 of Job, hoo boy. Like, it's buckle up time. It's uh, (laughs) hoo boy.
0: But at least we could say that Leviathan as kind of a mythical figure myth meaning like maybe legendary is a better word. Not that, I mean, there are actual monstrous there creatures in the, waters, in the waters, and yes. So they would wash up and ancient people would be like, Oh my gosh, yeah, could there's you imagine, a monster. Could
1: you imagine seeing a large <laughs> whale wash up on shore or, or, or even a, a giant a crocodile or a crocodile? You know, like I mean, yeah, any of
0: it. Yeah. I mean, all of that is, is uh frightening, uh, <laughs> but then I think like, yeah, kind of the mythological level, that maybe it's a it's an exp- and you were kind of saying this it's a it's a personification of the apparent chaos of the natural world you know so all these terrible storms in california like it's not evil in the same way that a bombing or a shooting is evil and yet so much harm and damage is being inflicted on these people and so we could say okay leviathan has attacked these communities Leviathan is at least the personification of chaos of natural chaos mm-hmm. the natural world
1: and so if you are very very curious about this like I said I've not spent a ton of time div- diving into Leviathan if uh, you want us to talk more about it next week you'll have to send us a question yes and yes. then we will do so
0: the uh, the the only thing I had with job is just that his famous longing for a mediator there at the end in, in mm. uh, chapter nine Mm -hmm. towards the end of chapter nine yeah uh verse 32 he is not a mere mortal like me that i might answer him that we might confront each other in court if only there were someone to mediate between us someone to bring us together someone to remove god's God's rod rod. from me so that his terror would frighten me no Mm. more then i would speak up without fear of him but as it stands now i cannot it's just like I know that there are God-fearing people who've read these scriptures for thousands of years and don't see Jesus in it, but like that's this is one of those where it's like, come on. Like, uh-huh. what else are we talking about here? <laughs> yes.
1: I agree. I agree. Um, well, and it's interesting because Job just a little bit before had said, I'm going to talk because that's who I am. Mm-hmm. Like, even though I'm scared and I shouldn't, I'm, I will. And then here in chapter 9 says, if only someone could... Come and mediate between us because god is too powerful even Mm -hmm. if even if i'm right and he's Mm -hmm. wrong i lose because there's no one to hold him in check um to protect humans from him and if only if only one day in the future there might be someone that could mediate and reconcile
0: humanity and god well and it's also cool just to think that job is probably it's among the oldest Mm-hmm. And Job isn't, well, we don't know whether Job is even an Israelite person, right? It is he, not
1: said. Yeah. He's so
0: the he greatest could, of the men of the East. So it could even be that this is a Gentile, I mean, what later would be called a Gentile, a non-Abraham family person who has this longing mm-hmm. for a mediator. Well, you know, and knows just, Yahweh
1: because he's making sacrifices, yeah, he's quoting yeah, psalms. Yeah, like, it, he's He's around. It's just interesting to think. He's probably not
0: <laughs> interesting to think just about the that i think that's that is built into us certainly to want to know god but even in the face of again natural the chaos of the natural world and the injustice that we perceive of like you know there there has to be a way for us to connect even if it's just to accuse him (laughs) (laughs) of mistreating Uh us you know that there needs to be a referee almost yes you know between between god and i
1: till we have faces was the book that CS Lewis believed was the most important he ever wrote and it is just so powerful it's this wonderful novel that retells the greek myth of psyche but it really is the story of job and you do you i cannot tell you how he puts you in the same mindset of job when you get to Job 38 and God speaks again. I mean, it's just, I've read it three or four times. I get goosebumps every time. If you would like to to read Job from a different perspective in a novel form, I recommend Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis.
0: This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.